We bring the news. We bring the action. We bring it live. This is 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program. If you're listening to us on highfm.com or 101.9 or indeed on the Jerusalem Post, it is good to have you and good to be with you again on the show once again. This particular episode is very, very special. We're coming to you from literally the shores of the Kinneret Sea of Galilee. And we are at Menachem Goldman Fellowship. And Menachem Goldman Fellowship is a yearly gathering of Jewish lay leaders and professionals from around the world. From this year, 18 different countries, 35 different fellows. And they talk about how they can get along, engage one another, and help change their local communities for the better. And so we thought this particular new Blue Review episode that we would bring you a taste of what is going on at Menachem Goldman and what is going on around in the Jewish world. So first up we thought we would speak to Benjamin Kweskin. He is a foreign policy expert and a writer on a variety of issues to do with international affairs. And most interestingly for our perspective, he spent a year living in northern Iraq, which apparently is not on everyone's bucket list in terms of tourist destination. So we thought we'd bring him on to have a chat about what was it like. Benjamin, thank you so much for coming on and welcome to the New Blue Review. Thank you. It's good to be here. So you threw a dart at a map and that's how you ended up in northern Iraq. Precisely. Precisely. (laughs) That's exactly what happened. No, but seriously, what happened? Why did you do this? I have been very interested in the Kurdish people, their history, their background in general, and that was for a very long time since undergrad. And I have continued with this interest uh, consistently, and I finally had an opportunity to basically put my money where my mouth was and work in northern Iraq, in Iraqi Kurdistan as it's also known. Uh, And I lived there from 2013 through 2014 and had a, a fortunate experience to go back in 2015 to visit. So explain to us a little bit for our listeners that have never heard of a Kurd something that comes with way, I don't know. What What is a Kurd? What is the people all about? It's a very good question. Uh, the Kurds uh, are spread out through, uh, through the Middle East. They're the fourth largest ethnic group in the region. Uh, some people put them about 30 to 50 million people. Um, I tend to believe it's closer to the 35 or so. Uh, and they are spread across predominantly southeast Turkey, northern Syria, northern Iraq, and northwest Iran. And Kurds are a separate ethnic group from other people in the region, although of course there's similarity and overlap. Uh, They have their own tradition, their own identity, their own culture, and they, uh, they have been living in this area for a very, very long time. They're indigenous to the region. And in terms of a different ethnicity, I understand that, but do they have a separate religion from the people in the area? That's a very good question also. So today, Kurds are predominantly Sunni Muslim. Uh, they, there's different schools uh, within Islam, within Sunni Islam, and most Kurds tend to um, believe in the more liberal, lenient school of uh, Sunni Islam. Uh, and. There are other minority groups. There are Shia Kurds, there are Christian Kurds, there are Jewish Kurds, um, 99% of whom live in Jerusalem, or, or other parts of Israel, I should say. Most of the Kurds live in Jerusalem. Uh, and there are also Zoroastrian and uh, Yazidi Kurds, uh, as well as Shabak and um, 
Yarsan Kurds. So there's there are minority religions that people may or may or not be familiar with, uh, but um, it, it's estimated that about 80 to 90 percent of Kurds are Sunni Muslim today. However, they are still very strongly attached to their pre-Islamic identity. And for many Kurds, not all of course, but for many of them, it's most important for them to latch on to the Kurdish identity versus their religious identity. So what was it like going into this part of northern Iraq? Kurds are, are spread out throughout the Middle East. You chose to go to Iraq. Uh, was this? When was this exactly? So my wife and I got married in August of 2013. Five days after getting married, we moved to northern Iraq, to the regional capital uh, called Erbil. And we flew from, uh, well, we were supposed to fly from Europe, but we ended up flying from Istanbul direct to Erbil. We um, did not go through Baghdad or any other Iraq, uh, Iraqi city. And so um, that, that experience uh, really uh, was important for us and today, naturally, but uh, that's a better question. The question I have really is, I was asking when you went primarily, because northern Iraq hasn't been very stable, well, Iraq in general, that whole region. Uh, so what was it like to go in 2013 at that time? Yes, so it was a very eye-opening experience. Uh, I would say that most people would ask me, was it safe? Uh, the answer to that question is yes, it was safe. Uh, from 2003 through about 2014, uh, the Kurdish region, which is a federal region, part of Iraq, uh, was basically a country within a country. Uh, it was very safe. Uh, there is a strong sense of Kurdish nationalism uh, and a Kurdish identity versus an Iraqi identity. And it was an opportunity and time for um, us to see this, Westerners to see this, and how how Kurds are able to function as a as a semi-autonomous region, as they're often um, discussed. So it was very eye-opening as a Westerner, as an American, but also as a Jew. Um, there's very interesting history of, of Kurds in this area, Jewish Kurds in this area, um, dating back to um, the Tanakh, the, the Torah even. Now, that was 2013. Uh, maybe to give listeners a little bit of context, the Kurds have kind of been caught a little bit in the middle of the Syrian civil war. So just give us a bit of context about where that sits. And since you visited, what has happened uh, given what's been going on in Syria? Right. So 2014, uh, uh, this summer, about a week and a half after we left, or before we left, rather, ISIS, uh, as we, at the time we didn't know what ISIS was, but in June of 2014, July of 2014, there was this very extremist group uh, that started uh, making headlines, and um, they took over Mosul, the city of Mosul, which is the second largest city in the country, um, around that time. And um, basically, to, to contextualize it for people, um, they threatened the Iraqi Kurdish region, but since August uh, of that time, August 2014, um, I would say most of the fighting, if not all of the fighting, has been on the borders of the Kurdistan region and even uh, into the so-called disputed region, which, which is more mixed, more 
um, heterogeneous communities of Kurds, Christians, Yazidis, and, and Arabs, and, and also Turkmen. Um, however, a few years prior to that was, of course, the beginning of the Syrian civil war. And uh, many Syrian Kurds uh, chose to flee to Iraqi Kurdistan, and so um, at, this, at that time there was about 200, 250,000 Syrian Kurdish refugees that made their way into Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, we had a lot of friends at the school that we taught at uh, who are Syrian Kurds, and uh, my wife was fortunate enough to volunteer at a refugee camp, uh, and of course she met many, many Syrian uh, Kurds at that time. So talk to us a little bit about the experience of, of being there. You're a Caucasian, white Jewish guy from Atlanta, uh, peddling about in the Middle East where Jews are perhaps not uh, well liked, or, or perhaps they are. Talk to us a little bit what it would like to be that other in, in, in a place like that. Sure, it's a very good question. Uh, so personally speaking, I'm not a, an observant person, so at first glance someone might not think that I'm Jewish. Uh, and so we, we did, of course, make many friends, Kurds, Arabs, uh, other Westerners, naturally. Um, and when you befriend someone, there's a, a sense of trust that you build up in that relationship. And after that trust is created, then, you know, some of the barriers come down. Uh, we did share, my wife and I, that we were Jewish with many friends and colleagues, but it wasn't something that we necessarily broadcast on the street. Um, however, I will say that most Kurds in Iraq are very philo-Semitic, and even more than that, uh, I would say that they're extremely pro-Israel. So explain to us a little bit about that, because I think that the listeners might not be aware of the Kurdish-Jewish relationship and why it is that there is some sort of connection uh, between the two. Sure. I think a lot of it comes from the um, experience that both Jews and, and Kurds have had in the region. Uh, historically, um, they're a marginalized, um, often uh, persecuted community, um, and also in more recent years, the Kurds have suffered tremendously, um, especially in, in Iraq, at the hands of Saddam Hussein, and there was a, a genocide in the late 80s that killed uh, up to 200,000 Kurds and, and Christians. And so they look to the example of the Jewish people and the state of Israel and, and look to themselves and say, well, you know, we have a lot to learn from them. Uh, I, I think it's a mutual learning that needs to go on, and it is going on, of course. But um, from a Kurdish perspective, if I may, um, they believe that it's to their benefit to um, make alliances with perhaps their enemies. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Some, some people would believe that is all that is necessary for a relationship, but uh, personally speaking, I think that it is much deeper than that. The relationship obviously goes back thousands of years. And so um, the Kurds say, well, there's, Israel is a, is a success story in the region. Um, why can't we also be a success in the region? So there's a little bit of political uh, relationship, but also there's a, a deep cultural, um, societal understanding, too, um, that Kurds all, also were victimized um, at the hands of perhaps Israel's enemies, shall we say. Now, there's a lot of interest and in developing issues around, you spoke about Kurdish uh, religious diversity, but there's also a lot of like political diversity. At the time of ISIS, we saw uh, a lot of pictures of like all-woman units and uh, sort of there seems to be different kinds of anarchist groups that come out of Kurdistan and sometimes religious groups and sometimes... So talk to us about why 
why that's the case. Sure. Well, I think when people see images of female fighters uh, battling ISIS, many of those women are in Syria. Uh, so that's a different political dynamic going on. Um, there are um, female units in Iraqi Kurdistan, um, and the, both women and men are called Peshmerga, which is a Kurdish word meaning those who face death. Uh, and this is a very honorable title for, for them to have. And essentially, nowadays, it's become a uh, unofficial Kurdistan army, if you will. Um, women in Syria, men in Syria that are Kurds, uh, have faced many, many decades of persecution from the Ba'ath regime, just as the Kurds have faced Ba'athist persecution in Iraq. Uh, and so this has led them to, to really want to push for, um, if not outright independence, um, most of whom simply want um, cultural autonomy, political autonomy, and a sense of breathing room, and uh, to have their culture recognized, to have their language recognized, to, to have their society independent from the majority Arab population in Syria, and for that matter in Iraq. And what kind of work were you doing? Uh, you you spoke about being in aid camps and uh, working with different people. What does a day-to-day life look like when you're doing that kind of work? So uh, my wife was predominantly the one who was working in the refugee camp. She was the um, uh, coordinator for the English language program and she was doing that for several months. Um, for myself, uh, my work was more, I was more interested in uh, writing different articles about different experiences um, politically speaking, uh, and I also was a tour guide uh, for a company that my friend was running. Uh, she's a journalist um, for a prominent Kurdish uh, daily as well as um, in Europe. And I had an opportunity to travel with people from abroad and, and share my own personal experiences that had happened months before, uh, but also I, I'm knowledgeable about the history and culture, and so I was a, a liaison, if you will, um, between the Kurdish population in these local localities and the, the tourists who often were coming from Point Zero. Well, it sounds absolutely fascinating and already I could feel like I could interview you for an hour. Uh, but you do say you wrote a lot about this. If people want to find out more about the Kurds, want to see the stuff you've written, uh, where can they look for it? Uh, I have a website called BenjaminQuestkin.com and they can also follow me on Twitter at BenjaminQuestkin. Benjamin Kressian, indeed. Thank you so much for joining us on the new Blue Review, and we look forward to reading more of your stuff. Thank you very much. Choose high. Choose high. You're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the new Blue Review, and we're coming to you straight from the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Tiberias today, the Nathan Goldman Fellowship, and we are speaking to various people on the fellowship who are doing good work in the Jewish world. And next on our list is Katrina Rosner. She is from World Jewish Relief, working extensively on Jewish issues in Ukraine. Katrina, start off by telling us what is Ukraine all about? Um, Ukraine used to be uh, the part of the former Soviet Union, and currently it's an independent uh, country. And uh, so... I was born. I was born in Kazakhstan, and uh, later, um, together with my parents, uh, moved to Ukraine, uh, so where my parents were born. And uh, this is uh, how I uh, was connected with Jewish community, with uh, Jewish organizations. And later, I moved to London, and um, currently residing um, in the UK. Talk to us a little bit about, first of all, Kazakhstan. 
Uh, it's a place that uh, I think got sort of a bit of a strange name because of it was in the media for a while. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, Kazakhstan also um, used to be a part of uh, the former Soviet Union. And so my parents, they were sent uh, to Kazakhstan, um, specifically to Baikonur. It was uh, the space and still a space territory, spaceship territory. And so my father, so he worked there as an engineer telemetrist. And so right after the marriage, um, so they moved to Kazakhstan, to Baikonur, and I was born there. Uh, so currently it is also an independent country. So you're like an you're like an almost like an astronaut kind of daughter. Yeah. So my father actually was the person who was saying ten, nine, eight, <laughs> seven, <laughs> and uh, I had once I had an incredible experience. Uh, actually, I was present, so my my father brought me to the spaceship territory to see how it's happening. It must have been incredible. Yes, incredible experience. <laughs> okay, so you moved from Kazakhstan to Ukraine uh, and then to London. And talk to us a little bit about the kind of things that are happening at the U- in Ukraine at the moment uh, that kind of compelled you to get involved. Um, so um, I'm currently working uh, um, in Ukraine coordinating livelihood development programs. And five years ago, um, um, World Jewish Relief uh, invited me um, to work and to pilot a new project uh, on assistance and employment. Um, in three locations in Ukraine, and uh, it was supposed to be um, the project uh, for five years. And later, um, analyzing the results and uh, the current needs in in our country, so we um, came to conclusion to extend the project for another years and also to bring it um, to different locations in Ukraine. And that was the reason um, inviting me uh, to join London team. Um, and so currently I'm coordinating, uh, so I have um, eight projects in my portfolio. Um, and this is um, how I, uh, what, I, what I'm doing currently in professional area. Why is there a particular focus on the Ukraine in terms of, of, of this? I mean, there's lots of FSU countries. What's, what's the issue there in particular? So, World Jewish Relief, uh, so this is the, the UK um, uh, Jewish Communities International Humanitarian Agency. And uh, so, uh, so this organization combats uh, poverty uh, among the world's uh, most vulnerable um, Jewish communities and beyond. And that's why um, um, they provide support to, um, um, to elderly and also to people who are unemployed uh, or living with disabilities, um, and also they re- respond to um, um, immediate and long-term needs um, in in those areas affected either by disasters or war conflicts. So, in this sense, um, we have in Ukraine the biggest number of uh, projects. Uh, helping, uh, supporting elderly people, as I said, and also vulnerable members of Jewish community, and because of the war conflict, internally displaced people. And World Jewish Relief actually has quite an interesting history, doesn't it? It was very involved with uh, many wars going back, uh, even to the beginning of the century. So tell us a little bit about that, because it's fascinating. 
So a voltage relief um, is also known as the British uh, Central Fund, and so it is also known um, by uh, organizing a um, rescue campaign um, called Kindergarten and saved uh, Jewish children at the beginning of the um, Second World War and bringing them uh, to, to the UK. So they were really the driving force behind the kinder transports, getting people out and taking them and, and moving them, basically. Yes, yes. And so currently, Voltage uh, Relief also um, provides um, support um, just in a different way um, and operates all over the world. So Ukraine, you're working there and you're working, you said, with the elderly and with the people who don't have access to various things. But it's not just biscuits and blankets. Right, you guys have a more overall approach to how you do things. Tell us a bit more about that. Uh, there were some changes in uh, approaches uh, in the work in the work uh, of, world, of the World Jewish Relief, and so I can call uh, our organization as uh, an active uh, organization. I mean, its involvement and guidance. So it doesn't provide only um, support. I mean, financial support. Uh, as grants, it also supports um, capacity, capacity building uh, among our partners, um, and uh, this makes special uh, this organization. Uh, and it brings also, um, in addition to crucial uh, support, it brings also um, British experience, uh, some higher standards, uh, and. Um, uh, pro- and also gives uh, give, gives new brings new opportunities, creates new opportunities. And the work that you do in terms of actual uh, helping people involves also not just giving development aid. You you actually help get people jobs and help them with training. How, what does that look like? Uh, so my work uh, is focused on the um, so-called livelihood development program. Um, and um, as part of this program, we empower those who uh, don't have jobs uh, or, as I said, living with uh, disabilities. Uh, so we uh, empower them um, um, to become self-reliant. And uh, so we help them to help themselves. And um, so we provide, um, through local partners that we, uh, we have in Ukraine, uh, we provide them support, um, so-called um, welcome-to-work courses, uh, vocational trainings, individual consultations uh, by our recruiters. Uh, we also connect them with uh, potential um, job providers, and um, we provide as well follow-up support. So we can be compared to maybe a unique job center that uh, works using kind of individual approach and so-called wraparound approach. So um, because in Ukraine we have to, um, state um, job centers, um, but also because we have a higher unemployment rate, so they work with uh, thousands of people and whereas our project can focus, for example, on 18 people per month, uh, and uh, it means that we are able um, to work like more closely with each participant and think what, what, what kind of uh, assistance this person needs in order to get back to employment. And what are the challenges of working in Ukraine as a country for the Jewish community, for an organization like yours? Um, what, are, what are the issues that you face? 
Uh, so I think uh, the the biggest challenge uh, is ongoing war conflict, uh, and uh, um, obviously it uh, uh, it affects uh, all population in Ukraine. Trina, thank you so much for being on the New Blue Review, and please keep up the good work you're doing at World Jewish Relief. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. You're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review, your favorite culture, politics, and Jewish-related current affairs show. Welcome back to the to the show, if you are listening on the Jerusalem Post or on ChaiFM.com. It's good to be with you. And we are here on the lake shores, shores of the Kinneret, the Sea of Galilee, at the Nachum Goldman Fellowship, speaking to different Jewish leaders, lay and professional from around the world, and getting an insight into what they're doing in their communities where they stay. And perhaps a Jewish community that you haven't really uh, visited, which I'm pretty sure you haven't, uh, we're going to find out about next and find out what is going on in that particular community. Got with us Danny Rustin, and uh, he is going to talk to us about the Jews of Mallorca. Danny, welcome to the New Blue Review. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me, Benji. Really nice for you to uh, be with us today. So talk to us a little bit. Perhaps people are not so good on geography. Where is Mallorca? So Mallorca is the largest island uh, in the uh, Balearic Island uh, archipelago, if you will, um, member of Spain, and it is actually located in between Spain and Italy. So not to be confused with the Canary Islands, which are off the coast of Morocco. Okay, and when you say a big island, what constitutes a big island? Uh, it's about 312 kilometers, more or less, of circumference. I know that because there's a famous bike race that happens every year that they bike literally around the island. Um, in terms of population, there are about 800,000 uh, people that live in Mallorca. Half of which, 400,000, live in Palma, which is the main city. You might have heard of Palma de Mallorca, um, which, is, uh, which is a very popular tourist destination uh, among Germans, but as well Brits and Swedes. It's actually a rather international community uh, in Mallorca. Now, I mean, I'm not an expert in accents, but you don't seem to have a Spanish twang. Uh, how is it that you ended up uh, on an island such as this? Yo puedo hablar español si quieres. I just said I can speak Spanish if you'd like. Uh, no, but you're absolutely accurate. I so am English-speaking radio. English-speaking only. Got it. Understood. Um, I am originally from the United States of America, uh, born and raised in the state of New Jersey. And I studied for a year in Madrid when I was in university, my third year in university. That's where I fell in love with the Spanish culture, food, way of life, mentality, and always wanted to go back to return to Spain and continue living there for some time. And I just did that about two and a half years ago in Mallorca. Okay, but why Mallorca? I mean, it's uh, off of Spain, it's an island, it's not... Is it really part of the country? Uh, It is part of the country, and the short answer is that is where I was able to find a job. Very good. And what do you work in? So um, my profession, I studied film in university, and then I uh, have gone through the the rankings, or ladder, if you will, of uh, freelance production. So I'm uh, currently a, a line producer on TV commercials. Do they film any of them in Mallorca? They sure do. Uh, we get uh, basically productions from around the world. Uh, Germany comes down quite a bit, UK, including the United States and Canada. And I, uh, I'm freelance now, but I was full-time at a production company. And they love to put 
people with the the clients that come. So very often I was the American producer that would work with the Americans uh, and the Canadians who would who would come to shoot in Mallorca. Make sure that the expats feeling at home. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about the Jewish community of Mallorca. It's got an interesting history. Uh, so tell us a little bit about it. So there are basically two sides uh, of the Jewish community in Mallorca, that which is Sephardic, uh, Jews that have come back from Morocco, uh, come from France, uh, come from other other parts of the world, and know that Mallorca is a beautiful place to live, quite safe, um, and have started a community there. I believe in the 80s is when the synagogue was, was there. Uh, that's a Sephardic, traditional, um, you know, Orthodox uh, uh, synagogue. And and those are are, are Jews by birth, uh, the, the the Jewish people that we're familiar with. The other side that I had no idea about growing up in the United States, never learned about until I landed on Mallorca, is a community that are not Jewish. Uh, they're called Chueta, and that is the same word you might have been familiar with, Moranos, the famous Moranos of Spain. Right, the the, the conversos, the people who hid the fact that they were still Jewish after being converted. Exactly. And so they, uh, around the four, in 1300s, 1400s, everyone knows the Spanish Inquisition happened in Spain, and this phenomenon of conversos came about where uh, they were crypto-judios. They were uh, Jews uh, practicing... I'm sorry, uh, Catholics who, were, who were, came from uh, Jews uh, were converted, and they kept on practicing Judaism in secret. Now, through the centuries, they obviously assimilated into um, Catholicism and general Spanish population. So the Moranos in the mainland, you don't really know who is a Morano. They might have some traces looking at their family tree, but it's nothing specific. It's quite different in Mallorca. Because it's an island, uh, these people were actually labeled and they actually faced discrimination through the through the years. So, in other words, they they never managed to do what the other Moranos did, which was kind of blend into the Spanish culture. Exactly, and it's amazing because the Inquisition happened in, officially in 1492, but the effects of it are still being felt today in Mallorca in 2017, uh, in the sense of that um, they were taken on these uh, last names. So, uh, up until 18. Uh, 1815, I believe, there were 15 last names that were hung in a Dominican church in Palma de Mallorca, um, some of which you might even recognize. Miro, M-I-R-O, is a very famous Spanish last name, a famous artist uh, who's from Barcelona. He's not Chueta, uh, but uh, the Miro family from Mallorca is Chueta. Um, Colom is also similar to Cologne, Cristobal Cologne, you might have heard of, Christopher Columbus. There are people that think that Cristobal, Christopher Columbus was Chueta and was from Mallorca uh, and had to change his name to, uh, uh, to hide the fact that he was Jewish. And that his voyage, in fact, may have been an attempt to get away from the Spanish Inquisition in the first place. I personally do not believe that it is mere coincidence that 1492 was the expulsion of the Jews and the Muslims from Spain, and it was also the year that Christopher Columbus discovered uh, the New World. Very, very interesting. So tell us a little bit about your interaction with the community once you found out uh, about it and, you know, what it was all about. Uh, what's been your interaction like? Sure. So I uh, started going to the synagogue uh, once I moved to Palma. And uh, my first interaction when I learned about them was that there was, uh, I'll tell you a quick story, sitting um, in the synagogue, there was, let's say, maybe 12 or 13 uh, men. Uh, Jewish males um, who uh, who were sitting in the uh, in the in the prayer, and I suddenly realized that we were skipping uh, certain prayers as if we didn't have a minion. 
And I thought to myself, well, that's odd. Why, why are we skipping prayers when we have 12, 13 uh, Jewish males here? And I asked one of the people next to me, and they said, oh, well, because this guy, this guy, this guy, they're Chueta. And that is my first interaction of seeing, well, what, what's that mean? And apparently now, because they've been faced with such discrimination, uh, they've always felt this I- hidden identity, this lost identity, because now they're not, they're, not, they're not practicing Judaism in secret. They are fully Catholics, and they're actually more Catholic than the original Catholics because they've always tried to prove that they're not Jewish, that they really are Catholics. So some, that's an odd phenomenon that most Chuetas are more Catholic than the, than the, uh, the older Christians. And, but it's a new phenomenon that's been happening in the last five or ten years that a lot of these Chueta families, with the synagogue that's on Mallorca and with the internet today and opening up the globalization of the world, are finding out what it is to be Jewish and are trying to rediscover their Jewish past that they lost uh, about 500 years ago. So they're going to the synagogue. They're allowed to be in the synagogue, but they're not counted as part of the minion. Uh, there have been a handful, I would say about 10 or 15 uh, Chueta men and female have gone to Israel and gone through uh, the uh, Orthodox uh, Judaism uh, conversion process. Okay, so there's almost a, a rediscovery of what's happening inside the, inside those communities. Do you think that the Inquisition still holds sway in terms of the political attitudes of Spain toward Jews, towards Israel? Is it still something as part of the culture? So there's a couple things that's been happening the last couple of years within the Spanish government, one of which you might have heard of, that they're opening up its doors to Sephardic Jews who uh, can prove that they uh, have lineage that comes from Spain. They are able to apply for a passport from Spain and Portugal. Uh, I understand just from speaking with other members that are at the, our fellowship week here that Portugal might be a little easier uh, to get this back through instead of Spain. And many South Americans are actually applying through EU citizenship that way. That being said, um, I do also think through politics you will see that Spain as a government has taken a very pro-Palestinian approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as well. And uh, there have been a lot of notions of uh, of uh, anti-Zionism or anti-Israel sentiment within Spain. And I wonder if that's still leftover uh, sentiment from the Inquisition. I don't know if you uh, saw in the press about a year or two ago that Actually, Matis Yahu was boycotted from doing a festival within Spain. Later, it was he was that was redrawn and he was invited. Um, but I think the damage had been done at that point. Now, talk to us also a little bit about the idea of of going to be in a small Jewish community. I mean, you, you started off in America. I understand from your background, you worked in like some Zionist youth movements. You were very involved in the community. What is it like? Uh, going to this place where, they, where you now are part of a small community. Well, in one way, it's actually easier to be Jewish, you, which sounds weird because there's not a very present Jewish community. You have to really work hard to get matzah, to even uh, find times to pray. We only have Friday night services. That's it. There's not a lot of opportunity to be Jewish. But I would venture to say that it's easier to be Jewish. Why? Because... I personally do not um, eat uh, any ham or pork products, and Spain is known for its ham or pork products in everything. So by consciously making that decision to not eat pork, I'm already uh, showing my Jewishness to everyone around me. Um, I also tend to not be shy, which you figured out already, so I'm happy to speak with anyone who has any questions about, um, about being Jewish and uh, the majority of my friends are non-Jewish. I can count on one hand the amount of Jews that I consider uh, to be friends uh, in Mallorca. 
compared to 90%, let's say, of my um, my friends and family in the United States. It was very, um, you almost lost your Jewish identity because everyone around you was Jewish, and it was just a part of way of life. Um, probably not too different from, I imagine, what Israelis feel like. Why do they have to be Jewish if they live in Israel? So do you often find that there's like lots of Jewish tourists that come to the island and then will come and find the synagogue and spend time with you guys? So that's actually the a part that I'm trying to change. So many Jewish tourists, both from Israel, the United States, UK, will come to Mallorca, will go to the beach, will enjoy it as a holiday, will leave, having never known that there's a synagogue there, that there's this Chueta lost uh, Jewish community that's there, and that the city of Palma itself has a wonderfully rich uh, Jewish quarter. You could see where synagogues used to be. They're obviously still no longer present. There are places where churches are now. But that's something I'd like to be a part of. I'm very interested in having a revival of sorts to make Palma become a Jewish spot, much like um, Girona um, has become north of Barcelona. It's a very famous Jewish ghetto in Girona in Catalonia and with a wonderful uh, Jewish museum that that has a fantastic display of uh, the Inquisition and the community that was there. Well, there you go. If you're interested in uh, going on holiday to Mallorca, now you know uh, what to do. I understand that there's quite a lot of literature, a lot of uh, information out there. If people are more interested in the story of the Chueta in, in Marco, where would you suggest they go look? Uh, the wonderful World Wide Web. Uh, if you go to Google, um, just by typing in the word Chueta, which I'll happily spell for you now because it's spelled different ways, um, you will see uh, a beautiful documentary that's uh, free on, on YouTube to check out. Um, lots of uh, discussions and articles about it. Um, not as much as you would think uh, for being such a phenomenon, in my opinion. Um, but I think little by little, uh, it is growing. Now, Chueta is spelled in Spanish, C-H-U-E-T-A, Chueta. Um, but... Uh, it's worth saying that in Mallorca they speak a different language. It's called Mallorquin, which is a dialect of Catalan, which is a completely different language. And that is, they use the X as the ch sound. So Chueta is going to be spelled X-U-E-T-A. Okay, so there we go. If you're looking for more information on that, certainly an absolutely fascinating documentary and, uh, and topic just generally. Danny Rostin, thank you so much for being with us on the New Blue Review and uh, enjoy the rest of the fellowship. Thank you for having me, Benji. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi FM. You're back with 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review. Welcome back to the program. If you're listening to us on HiFM, HiFM.com or the Jerusalem Post, thank you so much for tuning in. And we're continuing our talk today about the Nahum Goldman Fellowship here on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, speaking to different Jewish communal leaders from around the world, talking about the work that they do and some of their challenges and innovations. And I've got a very special guest next up for the segment. She is Vivian Tessone, and she is from the Jewish community of Colombia. She's going to be talking to us about that community and some of the rather interesting challenges that they face as a community. Vivian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being on the New Blue Review. Hi, wonderful to be here. So first of all, tell us a little bit about the Colombian Jewish community. How big is it? Where does it come from? Well, it's a small community. We're about 4,000. We just finished doing a census. We still have to, you know, analyze the information, but we figure we're about 4,000, and they are divided in four major different cities, so we're spread out. So if we'll be 4,000 in one place, we will be one thing, but we're very spread out. We have Ashkenazim and Sephardic communities, 
But we only have Orthodox, which is modern Orthodox and conservative. We don't have reform or any other movements in Colombia right now. So that means that, you know, religiously we're very much alike, very much the same. That must help to organize the community a bit, uh, not having as many divisions perhaps as the North Americans, for example. But we're Jews. You'll find a way to, you know, make divisions and fight with whatever reason. But no, we're still... Joking aside, we're still a close-knit community. And when did most of the Jews come to Colombia? Most of them came in the 20s, actually before the wars in Europe, and the Sephardim ones came because there was a horrible economic situation and they were looking for a better place to go. So they wanted to go to America. They didn't know that there were different countries with different climates and different cultures. So they just went to America. Some of them came because a family member had come before, so they brought them, and some got there like literally by chance because it was the place that both the women stopped, and that's where they stayed. Uh, we had the, the Ashkenazi ones were running from, you know, pogroms and the anti-Semitism that was there, and then we got a little wave after the war as well because Colombia wasn't one of those places which opened the doors widely, but we got some people after the war as well. And they are the ones who build the community. So it's like 80, 90 years old, but it's kind of new, kind of old. Now, Colombia's uh, had a sometimes unstable history. What, what is the relationship between the Jewish community and, uh, and other Colombians like? Well, we actually lost a lot of people in the 80s and 90s due to the violence and due to the narco wars because it affected the population a lot, and people who had the means actually left. So the community got reduced a lot then, but then after it, the country started getting better. We got the fight with the drugs, stopped. The fight with the guerrillas went on the government side, so like their capabilities reduced a lot. And a few people started coming back. Not the same amount that we lost, but a few of them had started coming back. And we also got an influx of Venezuelan Jews sorry, that since the situation there is horrible, well, they're trying to go to different places. Not all of them are coming to Colombia. Most of the people who actually emigrated are going elsewhere, but a few of them have come to Colombia, so that's like a new blood we're getting. Okay, so that's an interesting revival happening a little bit in the community. And uh, you work on all parts of the community. You you work for umbrella organizations. You yeah, work we're a lot of the different organizations we have, but mostly in Bogota. Since we have different cities, there are other organizations and other people who are you know in the front of those in the different cities we have. But I do work with the umbrella organization, which gathers Everyone. all of them. So yeah. And and ordinary Colombians, do they know about Jews? Do they think about them? Do they? People in the city will know about Jews. But in the rural areas, no, because we have we still have a lot of social disparity in Colombia. So there's a whole difference of what's going on in the cities to what's going on in rural areas. So in the cities, they will know mostly, like they know the name or they have seen a movie character or something like that. They don't know much. But there isn't a lot of anti-Semitism. I will say it's practically in existence. What people are is curious. Like they always ask, oh, what is that? What do you do? Uh, why are you Jewish? Like, what does that mean? The country is mostly Roman Catholic, so that's the framework they have. So, usually, uh, what they hear, what they see, is what is in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, which doesn't actually paint a good light on us, and the way that has been taught, especially in the rural areas. But we are all very open. There has been no anti-Semitism, uh, and they are willing to listen, to talk, and to learn. Like 
What do you do? <laughs> now, one of the other phenomenons you've been speaking about here at the Nachum Goldman Fellowship has been a remarkable set of mass conversions uh, that have been taking place in Colombia towards the Jewish community. Uh, sounds like an interesting phenomenon. Talk to us about that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's a very new phenomenon. It's been like 15 years. And we had this group of people like show up as a whole to one of their synagogues to ask for a conversion. Of course we do conversions, but what we do are individual process or family processes. But these people want to convert as a whole. Like we're a community, we gather together, we study together, and we want to convert together. They decided to do that by themselves. They were originally, you know, Roman Catholic. They were raised like that. They decided that that wasn't really for them, so they drifted to Christianity, to evangelical groups. They formed some evangelical groups, and by studying, especially reading the Old Testament, they figured out that what was written in the Old Testament wasn't exactly what they were doing, like what they were practicing. So they started to study more and found out that Judaism actually practiced a lot of what it was in the Old Testament, and they decided that that was what they wanted to do. Of course, they studied a lot more, mostly done by the Internet, the magic of the Internet, anyone can access information. So they studied that way, and they wanted to convert. The first group we found about was 104 people, and the community couldn't convert them together. They offered them the choice to do an individual process. But they didn't want to study for as long as we required them because they figured we already studied, we are already ready. So the community didn't help them through this process. They did it on their own. They got a rabbi to fly to Bogotá to actually do the mass conversions in a river. He did the ritual there, like a mikveh, and that's how he converted them. This was the first one, but since then there have been a lot more. The biggest one was about 300 people which came with their own pastor, who is now a rabbi, and they did kind of like the same process. They started by being Roman Catholic, then they were evangelical with a very, very big church, like a mega church of 3,000 people, and then they decided they want to practice what Jesus did in his time, which was closer to Judaism, so they started celebrating the holidays and keeping Shabbat instead of keeping the Sunday, and then this is where the biggest shift happened that they decided that Jesus wasn't for them a Messiah and wasn't for them God. So they broke off from this big church, a group of 300 people who are now uh, very devoted Orthodox Jews who did their own conversion as well and who have their own community in Antioquia, which is one of the regions we have in Colombia. Since then, there have been another 38 groups. So, I mean, you, you're starting to get numbers that are like 10% plus of what the current uh, Jewish More. community... More. We're figuring about 2,000, and we're 4,000. So this is a big impact on us because we don't have the resources to absorb them, even if we had, if the community had this open-doors policy, which right now is very complicated because we do not have how to absorb them to very many our institutions. And the rabbis that they're using, are they like legitimate rabbis? Do they order them off the internet? Well, they do not have like a rabbi on site. What they do is they you know, order from the internet a rabbi to go and do the conversions. Some of them have had a lot of problems with those conversions not being recognized. Some of them wanted to make aliyah, and when they wanted to do that, the conversions weren't recognized. So they had to go to a second or a third process to actually do it. We think about... Uh, 300 of them are already living here in Israel. 
and four of them are actually on their way to becoming rabbis. So they've done different processes with different people after leaving Colombia. So where does the community see itself in terms of this challenge? You've got these two different communities living there. What what do you think will happen next? Well, it's a very weird phenomenon. We're not used to, you know, masses of people wanting to become Jews. So, of course, we're just learning how to handle it. Uh, what we're doing so far is building bridges with their communities because they have their communities and they want to keep having their communities. So we're building uh, some bridges with them, mostly towards teaching them about cultural uh, Judaism, about the Holocaust, and about how to engage with and being a minority in a mostly non-Jewish country. Because since they are very, very devoted, they tend to demonize their past religion. So we had instances of them talking in large groups or to the press and saying, oh, you're idiots because you believe in Jesus. And you cannot say that to other people. So we've done, so we're doing some, you know, workshops with them to let them know how to communicate and how to engage because they are seen as Jews and they are representing us whether we want it or not. So that's how we're working with them so far. I don't know what will happen because this is still an ongoing story. And we've had some people coming up like the last few years, they have multiplied, but we think the phenomenon is kind of like dwindling. We think it's reaching a stopping point. Talk to me in a year and I'll tell you how, how it's going that way. Absolutely fascinating. Now I understand that you also are uh, among your many talents an editor of a, a Spanish-speaking magazine. I'm not sure how many Spanish speakers we have on High FM, but uh, what is the cover and where can people uh, read it if, if they want to see what you do? Okay, so it's a Jewish magazine. We do a parasha, we do different articles centering on Judaism, uh, we have many people who collaborate with us, and if any of you want to write, I'll be happy to. And it's called Hashabua, which, you know, the way, because it's a weekly magazine. And you can find us at www.hashabuabogota.com. Vivian Tesora, thank you so much for being with us on 101.9 Chai FM, and my first Colombian interview ever. My first South African interview ever, so we're <laughs> both doing something new today. There you go. Thank you so much. And uh, safe travels back to Colombia. Thank you very much. That brings us to the end of the show for today. Thank you so much for listening to this special podcast from the lake shores of the Sea of Galilee on the Nachum Goldman Fellowship. And uh, any comments, complaints or criticisms, please feel free to send it to us, Benji, at chai.co.za or at chai.m is our Twitter handle, and uh, we will uh, respond. Thank you so much for listening, and shalom until next week.